Exodus. We'll be in chapter 16 this morning. So that's the second book of the Bible. And uh, if you're using one of the Bibles we provided there, it will be page 58. Page 58. Well, uh, as I shared a bit earlier, uh, Scott and I really had a wonderful time in India. Uh, We're grateful for your prayers and grateful for how God answered prayer while we were there. Uh, we really feel, and this is, uh, this is speaking for, for John and John, our, our elder team, uh, we really feel like this is an opportunity to invest in global missions that's really in some ways tailor-made for a church plant like ours. Now, we're big on relationship here, so we have a great relationship, not just because uh, John's twin sister serves there, Amy. That's not the primary motivation. That is certainly a significant connection uh, to the team there. But we have some other friends uh, who are graduates of the seminary uh, where we also studied, and, uh, and they're doing a great work there. They have a great strategy. And, and primarily, what they're trying to accomplish is to raise up national pastors and church planters to equip them with the basics of the gospel and the basics of Christian mission and to equip them to multiply themselves, not only in making new disciples of Jesus, but also as they make these new disciples, to gather these new disciples into new churches and to see that multiply again and again and again. So for us as a new church plant, uh, as a growing church, but yet still not a, you know, mega church in the sense of of hundreds and hundreds of people attending, this gives us an opportunity to get our feet wet in global missions where we can come alongside of them, help them train and teach these uh, church planters as well as engage in the city. Many of the the, the things that we do in Boston, they may may look a little different there, but the fact of the matter is we're reading the same Bible. We have the same mission, and so there is opportunity for all of us to get involved in God's mission there in India. So I hope that we will collectively take this responsibility with great seriousness, but also great joy uh, for what God is setting before us as a church. Now, Scott and I tried to drink deeply of the culture while we were there in all ways. We were there primarily, of course, to encourage the the team of missionaries to uh, see how we can partner with them in the work. And and as I shared, God answered those prayers. But we also wanted to learn uh, the culture of of India. What what, what are the customs? What kind of foods do they eat? Uh, How do they drive and try to navigate through the city? And that, my friends, is an experience in and of itself. You think driving in Boston is kind of, you know, crazy and difficult? I mean, in, in, in India, you have loads of of cars and vehicles. Then you have rickshaws, little like three-wheeler taxis that are going, you know, in and out, bobbing and weaving. You have motorcycles, people, not wearing helmets, that are just, you know, bobbing and weaving through traffic. People on bicycles, people walking, pulling carts down the middle of the street. And and this is all happening at the same time, okay? So it was was an experience uh, in and of itself. 
uh, we were able to, uh, to, to learn some of the customs. In India, they take two chai breaks a day. Okay, I know some of you really enjoy that. All right, so at 10.30 and at 2.30, we had more chai than I think, you know, we've ever had in our life just in about the first two days we were there. So, I mean, we were just constantly uh, drinking chai, enjoying that. Uh, we got to visit a city called Ujjain which is one of the, uh, the kind of uh, meccas of Hinduism in, in India. So they have one of the, the most famous Hindu temples there. We were able to go in and observe uh, the, the idolatry and the false worship that's going on there of these, of these gods that are not the one true God. Uh, and then also we went down to the, uh, to the river there in Ujjain, which you've probably at some point either uh, seen on TV or on the internet uh, how that... that once every four years, uh, literally hundreds of thousands of Indians will come for these ritual cleansings in one of four rivers. One of those is just an hour uh, from where uh, we're going to be making a significant investment. So uh, as we were coming back from the river, actually Scott and I had an opportunity uh, to, to not only see an elephant, but we hopped on the back and rode an elephant. Uh, that wasn't planned, but it was kind of a cool uh, blessing along the way. So we, we experienced a lot. But in all of what we experience, I think two things stand out the most, and you won't be surprised by these. Number one, when we exited the airport and got in the taxi and began making our way to the hotel where we would be staying, after we got off the main road, we encountered poverty that would take your breath away. I mean, it, it, it felt like a slap in the face. These people are living in slums, no electricity, no plumbing, no really roof over their head, most of them unless they're fortunate enough to have some kind of tarp and these walls that they've constructed. And so even though this is a developing city, you still have extreme, extreme poverty, poverty that is hard for us to understand as wealthy Americans. But then not only that, as great as the physical needs are there in India, the spiritual needs exceed them exponentially. India is a country where there is roughly, uh, or at least Madhya Pradesh is a, is a state in India where there's roughly 1% believing Christians. So you have people, almost every religion under the sun, people that are searching for something to fill the void, and yet most of them not only have not turned to Christ, but they've never heard of Christ. And so this is why we want to partner with this team in India to take the gospel there. Now, as we think about the great physical needs that are there, and as we think more about the great spiritual needs, let's take heart, number one, that God is a God who cares about both. He's a God who cares about our physical needs, whether we be in India or the United States, but he is a God who especially cares about our spiritual needs because our spiritual needs are our eternal needs. And so while the task is great, 
while the task is really overwhelming. I mean, we felt some of this when we come, came to plant a church in Boston. It's not easy to plant a church in Boston, one of the cities in America that has the least number of evangelical Christians. And yet, even though this task is so great, we have a God who is powerful, who is able to provide and to save and to work and to distribute his mercy, love, and grace so that people might come to know him. And so this morning as we dive into Exodus, I want us to think about God being our true and greater provision this morning. If you remember last week, if you were able to hear Todd's sermon, we looked at the first 15 roughly chapters of Genesis, and we saw how God heard the cry of his people in, in Egypt while they were under uh, oppression and slavery in Egypt. He hears their cry, and he brought them out through the plagues and through the Passover. He led them out of Egypt and redeemed them to be his people moving on to his land. And so after they sing this song of praise, the song of Moses in Exodus 15, what we find immediately happening then is that they're on this journey in the wilderness to go to the promised land. Now, what do we find then in the first few verses of Exodus 16 that tells us what's going to happen on this journey? Let's read the first few verses together. It says this, they set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, what that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we set by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning, bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So do you see what's going on here? We, we, we just reminded that, that we're reminded that the people were just brought out of oppression and slavery in Egypt. And as they begin on this wilderness journey, it says that they begin to grumble because they were hungry. Now, I'm sure none of us in here have, you know, the problem of grumbling or complaining, all right? You know, but, but just in case you do, just in case, 
Uh, let me give you a few truths about grumbling that we can see here in Exodus 16, okay? So number one, grumbling is a sin, all right? I'm just gonna, you know, shoot straight here. We try to tell the truth at Redemption Hill, okay, just what the Bible says, that's what we try to say. And so grumbling is a sin. It means it's not cool before God. It's not right. It's not part of his plan. It's not his will. So it doesn't matter if it's children at the dinner table. Parents, can I get a witness here? You know, don't want to eat the carrots and things like that. And uh, when, as soon as they see the plate, they you know, shrug their shoulders and start to grumble. You know, or adults at work or in our relationships. We get these things going on that, that just cause us to, to mumble and murmur and complain and grumble. So that's what Paul says in Philippians 2.14. Do everything without grumbling. Grumbling is a sin. But don't miss that the sin behind the sin of grumbling is discontentment. So if we look closely, and we need to learn this about all of our sin, okay? All of our sinful actions, no matter if they're thoughts, no matter if they're attitudes of the heart, no matter if they're part of our conduct, all of our sin is typically driven by other sin going on in our heart. So we could call this the sin underneath the sin or the sin behind the sin. There is sin that is driving the sinful thoughts and sinful actions that we have. And so behind the sin of grumbling is typically the sin of discontentment. We're not satisfied with the way things are right now. And so we get upset and we complain and we grumble about it. But we do that because there's something going on in our heart that is being exposed before God. Number three, we have, as we see here, an uncanny ability to quickly, quickly disregard the work of God. In chapter 15, verse 1, the people of Israel are singing a song of loudest praise. Look back at what it says. Then Moses and the people sing the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. God, you are great. Jamasiki, praise the Lord. And yet, now, just a few verses later, God, I'm not so sure if you're strong. God, I'm not so sure if you're worthy of my praise. God, I'm not, I'm not so sure if, 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 if I should give my life to you and proclaim and tell of your greatness. It's amazing how in just a few short moments or a few short days or weeks, we go from experiencing the awesome works of God to disregarding them and going on about our business, grumbling and complaining, not only in the presence of others, but primarily before God himself, which is the fourth truth. When we grumble, we are really grumbling against the Lord. This is what God says to Moses. This is what Moses and Aaron say to the people. You think you're grumbling against us? Who are we? Do, we? do we rescue you out of Egypt? Do we lead you across the Red Sea by our own strength? So God is saying, look, they are grumbling against me, as verse 8 tells us. 
And the Israelites should have known this, right? I mean, they had just experienced these works of God, and yet they brushed them aside and grumble against God. So whenever you find yourself grumbling, just, just pause long enough to know that what's going on in your heart to some degree, perhaps to a great degree, is that you were discontent, not simply with your circumstances, but you were discontent with the God who has allowed your circumstances to take place. So that begs the question, how would God respond? His people, who he just had rescued out of Egypt, are grumbling before him. And man, if I'm God, I'm pretty upset about this, right? I mean, it's like, hey, you know, do you have amnesia? Like, what's going on here? And yet God in his grace sends his spectacular provision. Look again at verse four. It says that God says, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven from, for you. So this is the first truth that I want us to, to grasp this morning. We should recognize God's gracious provision in spite of our grumbling. He says he's going to rain. I mean, think about that picture. Rain, it just fills the sky. It's, it's everywhere that, that you can see. And this is the kind of provision that God is going to send, this, this bread from heaven to satisfy the hunger of his people. Verse 31, if we, as, as we go on and read, it says that, that the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And so other places in the Bible, it says that this food was, was called the food of angels, Psalm 78. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says that this was spiritual food that God was providing for his people there in the desert. But if we were to read the whole chapter, we would discover that God not only provides the manna from heaven for them to gather and eat, but he gives them specific instructions as they do so. Look in verse 16 with me. It goes on and it says this. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. 
On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So what do, we, what do we learn here? Okay, God gives some very specific instructions about the gathering of this bread. He says you're to go out and gather as much as you need for each person in your tent. You're to gather an omer. And an omer, if you look in the footnote of your Bible at the very back, it's probably going to explain that the measurements there, an omer was roughly the equivalent of two liters. So it was plenty for people to eat. He, he provides manna every day for them to eat. He provides quail and he gives them the command to rest on the seventh day because on the sixth day, he'll give them twice as much so that they don't have to go out and gather the food on the seventh day. Now, God provides in this specific way for a specific purpose. Look back at verse three. I'm sorry, verse four where he says, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Now here's why. That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So what God is doing here, he's providing manna every day for the people of Israel to see if they will look to him in faith and keep his commands. He wants to see what's going on in their heart. If, if they will listen to God and then follow as he has instruct, instructed. And so we should ask ourselves, even as we seek God's provision, are we eager to keep his word? God provides enough for each day and then the next day he provides again and the next day he provides again. And so I know a lot of times when we want God's provision, we say, hey, God, you know, you who, uh, I'm over here, can you just kind of drop that into my lap, you know, a little bit of grace, a little bit of wisdom, you know, strength for today, just kind of give that to me. And yet we do not want to lift even one finger to go and to seek the means of grace that he has provided for us to obtain his grace. So God says, look, I'm going to provide for you, but you need to follow my commands. You need to go out and you need to collect an omer every single day. He was testing them to see what was in their heart. And I think he does it in this way because he not only wants to see if they will obey him, but he wants to see if they, he can build their faith in God. You see that he provided each day. He provided enough bread for each day. So listen, if you're going through a trial in your life, if you need strength for some task, if you need God's power to enable you to keep his commands, just know that God is probably going to provide in such a way that you have to depend on his grace daily and hourly. He doesn't always give us, you know, uh, grace for the whole year. And we would all like that, right? It would just be, we'd be all set. But God says, look, you need to trust me today. And when we wake up the next day, you need to trust me today. And he does this so that we will learn to depend on him 
as our shepherd and father who loves us and cares for us and who provides for us. And he also does so, as verse 12 says, so that then we might know that he is the Lord, our God. Everything God does is for the glory of his name. It's so that we might know him more and we might love him more and we might want to worship him more. So it's amazing how God provides for the people of Israel in the wilderness. He tests their faith. He sees what's in their hearts. Some of them failed the test at times, as we saw, but many of them passed the test. They depended on God each and every day. Now, what's going on here in Exodus 16 is pointing us forward to God's greater provision that we find in the New Testament, in the Messiah, in the person of Jesus Christ. So I want you to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 6, the fourth gospel. It'll be probably page 891 in the Bibles we provided there. And we're going to look at a story of how Jesus then tells the people that he is God's true and greater provision. Okay, so as you turn there, let me set the context. The first part of chapter 6 tells us that Jesus had just fed 5,000 people miraculously with a couple of fish and loaves of bread. And he takes care of the people, and the people, it says that as they see the miraculous works of Christ, that they want to come and make him king. They want to put him in the position of authority because he, they believe he's the Messiah that's going to save them out of their desperate situation. And so when Jesus sees that, he withdraws from them. The disciples go across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus keep, catches up with them by walking on the water. And the crowds, because they've had their fill of the bread, it says that they go and they basically chase Jesus because they want to see more of his miraculous words. They want to have more of his physical provision. And so the crowds weren't always really wanting the best of what Jesus had to offer, but they were just looking for the the physical material blessings that he could provide. And so then we see in verses 25 through 27, it, it talks about this. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal." So do you see what's happening here? Jesus says, look, you're coming to me because you saw signs and you want more of this material blessing, right? And some of us in our prayer life approach God this way. God, I'm gonna ask you for this and I expect you to provide for me, but when it comes to the demands that you place on my life, I really don't wanna have anything to do with it. And that's not biblical Christianity. It's not Christianity at all. And so Jesus says, look, if you want to partake with me, If you want to be really what I'm about, then you need to come to me not only for the signs, but what the signs are pointing to, namely eternal life, the food that never perishes. But some people never see their need before God. That's why when when Pastor uh, and, and Indoor took us from house to house, we were going praying for the people. 
And we were laying hands on them and asking God to heal them because we believed that God can heal them in an instant. And yet, every time as we prayed for them, we would tell them about this world that we live in that is absolutely broken. And how that all of our physical needs and all of our physical brokenness are pointing to our greater spiritual brokenness. Our physical needs are, are, are telling us that we have spiritual needs that, that Christ can satisfy and fulfill. And so Jesus then in John 6, he goes on and, and he says, this is the work of God. They want to know what must we do to do the work of God. And, and Jesus says in John, John 6, 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work, faith trust, belief in who Jesus is and why he came for us. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? Here they go again. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so how does Jesus reply? Verse 32, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They're interested in this. So in verse 34, they say, sir, give us this bread always. And what does Jesus say in verse 35? Don't miss this. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you see what's going on? The, the, the sign of feeding the 5,000 was pointing to the truth that Jesus is the bread that we need to satisfy us, not just for a few hours, but forever. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever drinks from me shall never thirst. This is what Christ invites us to today. All of this comes through his work on the cross. Later in John 6, he would say, the bread that, that, that I provide is my flesh. In other words, I am going to give this to you through not only my sinless life for you, but my substitutionary death on the cross. And so my question for every single person in here today is the same question that we had for people last week in India. Have you received the bread of life that forever will satisfy you? We're all searching for something that satisfies. We're all hungry for something that will satisfy us, not just for a few days, but for eternity. And it is found in Christ. And so my encouragement for all of us then is to feast on him. To never get enough of Jesus because it's in Jesus that we find everything we need. And so I want to give you two very practical ways to do so today. Two ways that we can feast on Christ. Number one, feast on the words of Jesus daily. Feast on the words of Jesus daily. Deuteronomy 8.3, we find further commentary from Moses about this manna from heaven. 
And what does he, what does he say there? It says that, that when God was testing the Israelites in the wilderness, his purposes were these. It says that he humbled you. And he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the the manna that God was providing in the wilderness was not simply about hungry mouths to feed. I mean, God could have provided in a a variety of ways for them to to quench their physical hunger, but he wanted to see if they would obey his word. He wanted to see if they would listen to what he said and then perform it day by day. And so we find this verse quoted in the New Testament when Jesus encounters Satan in the wilderness and he's tempted. He hasn't eaten for 40 days or 40 nights. And Satan tempts him. He says, look, I know you have the power to turn these stones into bread. And what does Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He says, this is our strength. Do you get I mean, Anybody hungry? Some people are probably going to eat lunch in here today, maybe dinner too, you know, breakfast in the morning, you know what I'm saying? And we do that because we need food. We need strength for the day. We need to be sustained and fueled so that we can do our thing, go to work, get a job done, take care of our family, love people. And Jesus says, spiritually, the same is true. You need the provision of God to fuel you. And let me say this, and let me say it very clearly. And I'm saying this to myself because it's been a week and a half in India where I saw many Christians who have known Jesus for about three months, and they live a lot more like Jesus than I do a lot of days. To live by the words of God is not simply to know them. It's to do what they say. It's to actually live them out. I fear sometimes that we as American Christians, we're so, we're so rational. We have all the answers. We're so well read. We have all the book smarts. We can quote chapter and verse. But if we do not actually perform what the word says, we're not living by the words of God. God wants us to take his word and he wants us to obey his word. If you love me, Jesus says in John 14, 15, you will keep my commands. It's as simple as that. And so Jesus, when when he's telling a parable of the two sons in Matthew 21, this is what he says. Speaking to religious people, by the way, people who had all of the answers, probably much better than we have the answers. He says this, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. The first son was obstinate at first. 
Apparently, he's far from the Father's will. He says, no, I'm not going to go. But then he changes his mind and he goes and he obeys the will of his father. But the second one gives lip service to God. Hey, I know your commands. I'm going to do your commands. And he sits on his hands and he rebels against the will of the father. And I just asked myself, how many days is that Pastor Tanner? I know what God has called me to. I know what the word says. I know that I'm to be obedient to live my life for God. And yet so many days, I'm content with book knowledge that hasn't become heart knowledge that is now transforming my life in every facet. Jesus says in the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What? Teaching them to obey everything. So, so listen, it's not enough to know what the word says. It's not enough. God wants us to perform the word, to do the word, to obey the word. And listen, there is so much blessing when we keep God's commands. There's joy, there's life, there's, there's abundance when we follow God's will for our life, which leads us to the second practical way. And I'm gonna speed up, but I'm not gonna take, uh, I'm not gonna speed up too much because it's too important. Feast, not only on the words of Jesus daily, but feast by engaging in the mission of Jesus daily. There's another story. We don't have time to read it, but in John 4, perhaps you remember the story in your Bible. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well, and he asks her for a drink, which was unheard of in his day. And so she says, if you know, if you knew who you were asking, you wouldn't, you, what, you're asking a Samaritan, what's this all about? And so, so Jesus says, look, if, if you knew who you were talking to, you wouldn't just ask me for a drink, you would ask me for living water because I can give it to you. And, and so the, the conversation goes on and we find that this woman has been married multiple times and the, the, the man that she's living with now is not her husband. And so Jesus not only exposes her heart, but he cares for her. He, he introduces her to uh, himself as this fountain of living water that satisfies us, just like what we're reading about with the manna. And so she actually, like what a Christian should do, obeying the Great, Great Commission, right? She hears, and then she runs into the city and tells everyone else that she just met the Messiah, and so people are coming to encounter Jesus, to hear from Jesus, and his disciples finally come back with some lunch, and they say, hey, oh, Jesus, aren't you kind of hungry? You haven't eaten all day. Yeah, you might have had a drink from the well, but you haven't even eaten, like, in, in so many hours. We, we need, we're here some food for you. And, and so Jesus says, look, I have food that you know nothing about. And so the, the disciples are kind of puzzled, you know, it's not uncommon for them to be puzzled. They say, well, what is Jesus talking about here? Like, hasn't he had anything? He hasn't had anything to eat. Why is he saying he has food when I know he hasn't gone into the village to get any food? And what does Jesus then say in John 4, 34 and 35? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And what is that work? He says, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
So the work of the kingdom is gathering in more people to belong to Christ and to worship him in his kingdom. And Jesus says, doing this work, it fuels me. It gives me strength. It sustains me. So it's not just knowing the truth and even living it out, but it's about joining Jesus and his mission and finding that there is life there. When we were in India, I love the simple approach of the missionaries there as they train pastors and church planters. They have this, this training called the four fields. And, and, and the four fields is a very simple approach to being a missional Christian and to being a church planner. So field one is prayer. They say prepare the fields through prayer. And I think this is something we can all do, right? Does anyone pray in the room? It's kind of like, can you raise your hand if you've ever prayed before? All right, yep, that's, that's me too. Okay, very good. So, so when we pray, let's ask ourselves, how missional are our prayers? How concerned with the white harvest are our prayers? Are we asking God for opportunities? Are we asking God for boldness? Are we asking God for wisdom? Are we asking him for opportunities to go and proclaim about Christ? Prepare the fields through prayer. But then number two, it's as simple as sowing the seed. Sharing about who Jesus is. This is how we do it. We tell people the good news of Jesus. We tell people our testimony. We tell people why Jesus came for them, to save them, to satisfy them, to, to cause them to never hunger, hunger or thirst again. And then field three is when these new believers come to Christ, they help them grow in Christ. And then as they grow in Christ, they gather them into new churches, field four, and then they just start the cycle all over again. It's as simple as that. And so what Scott and I were coming back to Boston with is to ask ourselves, man, how faithful are we praying? How faithful are we sowing the seed? How, how expectant are we that God is going to do a great work and to, to cause people to believe in Jesus and to follow Jesus and to gather them into new churches? Because here's, here's a newsflash. I think everyone knows this, but we didn't move here to start a church. We moved here to start multiple churches around greater Boston and to help churches spread all over the world. And so... As we read earlier, one of the missionaries there, it was like a broken record, and it was one of the sweetest notes that I've ever heard. He continued in the teaching and training. He continued to ask the planters there. He said, what is God's vision? And then everyone would respond, harak jati, harak kul, harak basha, harak log. It's Revelation 7, 9, and 10, where John says, and we read it earlier, then I looked and a multitude was gathering around the throne. People from every nation, harak jati, and all tribes, harak kul, and all peoples, harak basha, and all languages, harak log, standing before the throne, crying out, salvation belongs to our God. So Redemption Hill, let me ask you this morning, if this is God's vision, then how could this not be the vision of our individual lives and the vision of our church? This is the vision of Redemption Hill Church. It's God's vision for the world that all people, 
at Tufts University, in your neighborhood, in Medford, Somerville, Cambridge, Melrose, just you, you fill in the blank there, that all of these people would know the satisfaction that comes from knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So the invitation for us then is to feast on Jesus as the true, eternally satisfying bread from heaven by faith every single day. We feast on him by living out his words. We feast on him by living out his mission. And then when we do that, here's a promise. You will discover that there is no greater mission in the world and there is nothing more satisfying than this. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. God, we're a wreck. So many days we're a wreck. We don't seek you. We don't feast on Christ. We don't want to, 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 to take in your word and live it out. And so God, I'm at the front of the line just to confess that I blow it so many days and I need your work of grace, your daily manna, your daily strength and power and grace to fill my life that I might be about the business of loving you, keeping your commands in a comprehensive fashion, which includes taking the gospel to the world. So Lord, I pray that today, March 9th, would be a point in the life of our church where we could say, man, these guys came back from India and not because there's something special about them or not because there's even something special about that dot on the map, but just because there's something special about Christ and his mission for us that you would do a great work in us to change our hearts, to cause us to walk in your ways, to give ourselves completely to you. So Lord, help us to be a people that is desperate, that are desperate for you and give our lives wholeheartedly to Christ. In his name we pray, amen.